Our worship where we look at the Word of God directly. We just sung it a moment ago uh, from Ephesians 4, 32, as you heard, uh, command to us as the people of God. And here we're going to look now at this portion of uh, portion of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, as we inaugurate our study in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon probably in the world. Um, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 3 is where we will look this Lord's Day morning from the living Word of God. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Actually, I want to read on. Uh, but I, I won't because I'm not going to preach verses 4 through and uh, following this morning. I'm entitling this section of um, Matthew 5, The New Humanity. The New Humanity. Biologically, there is one human race. But spiritually, there are two humanities. Those in the kingdom of heaven constitute the new humanity. And the new humanity is comprised of people from every branch of the human race. They are the new humanity because of divine grace. The commands, even the hard commands of the Sermon on the Mount, presuppose the prior working of divine grace in the subjects of the kingdom of heaven. Only grace... (laughs) can enable a person to do the things that Jesus demands of one who is his follower. As we will see when we address the first beatitude, the working of God's grace is internal. That inner work in the redeemed effects a profound spiritual transformation in the inner life which finds its expression in the outer life. But before treating the sermon itself, we will study what I'm calling the first heading here, the setting for the Sermon on the New Humanity. We see in verse 1 that Jesus saw the crowds, and he situates himself in response to that massive crowd that followed him. The crowd, we believe, is from verse 25 of chapter 4. At this point in our Lord's ministry, we need to understand he is immensely popular. His mighty miracles, his unprecedented banishment of sickness up to this very point in Palestine has attracted large numbers of people. They're also attracted to his unprecedented teaching, which is unprecedented because it's authoritative. So our Lord attracted people like a magnet does filings. And our Lord... He wants to minister to them because he has compassion for them. If you know anything about our Lord's ministry, you know how he is compassionate toward people, whether it's for their physical well-being or the spiritual needs that he knew that they possessed. Without question, he loved people. He loved people from every strata of society. He loved people no matter who they were or what they were. He loved people. It's not surprising. They're his creation. He had compassion on them. 
compassion on them. In fact, in this gospel, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, he saw them and he recognized that they were distressed and dispirited. They were distressed, that is, by their sinful condition. They were dispirited. They were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Shepherd to protect them, to care for them. That's how Jesus sees people. In Mark's gospel, the parallel account in the 6th chapter, verse 34, it is reported that he began to teach them many things. He saw their spiritual need. He knew their need better than they knew it. And he sought to address that spiritual need by teaching them the word of God. That's why he went upon the mountain in verse 1 of Matthew 5. He went up there to teach. Now, there's no specific mountain uh, named here in Matthew's account. The scholars believe that it was on the northeast shoreline of the Sea of Galilee at a place tradition calls the Mount of Beatitudes. The location that scholars believe Jesus delivered this sermon from provided good acoustics for a speaker to address a large crowd of thousands at once. You recall, you do know, that there is no electronic amplification. But the people could gather in large crowds and they could sit or stand and they could listen to our Lord speak this message and they could all hear it. Now you'll see that he's, after he sat down, stopped there at the comma in verse 1. His posture of sitting was meaningful. For when rabbis in Israel sat down to teach, what was said was considered authoritative and official. And his disciples came to him. The Sermon on the Mount indeed was primarily for them. They had experienced the gracious work of God in them. They, they knew what it was like to be transformed by grace. The twelve. With the exception, of course, of Judas Iscariot. Texts in the Sermon on the Mount show that the words of our Lord were for them. When he utters what he does, and beginning in verse 3, all the way down to verse 16, he is talking to his followers. They're the ones who are, for example, are the salt of the earth. And they're the light of the world. Earlier, he, he says, they're the one who will be persecuted for him and for righteousness sake. His disciples, he is saying, this is what it means to follow me. This is what you are and this is what will happen to you. So they learned what discipleship entailed. But you also need to understand that the sermon was for the crowds as well. It was an evangelistic message. Jesus was calling in this sermon from chapter 5 through 7. He's calling sinners to repentance. In our Lord's in it, our Lord showed the masses the standard of righteousness that they could not attain. When you read through this, you, you'll see there are things that Jesus says do uh, that uh, they, they couldn't live up to. And because of that, they would come to understand that they needed a Savior. For example, in the seventh chapter of Matthew we see in it an invitation. This is an invitation to sinners. 
He is saying in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. How do you enter? You enter by faith, faith in Messiah. In verse 14, he says, there, um, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. What kind of life? Life, eternal life. He says, there are few who find it. So by faith, you, you enter through the narrow gate. And when you do, you find life. You, you enter through Christ, who said later in John's gospel that he is the door. I am the door. Enter through me and find pasture. Eternal life comes. So it was for sinners. Not only for the immediate audience that was there on that day when this sermon was delivered. It's also for Christians today. For us. For you and me. So why are you saying that? I always assumed that was the case. But let me let you know there are Christians who have not assumed that that is the case. There are Christians who think, no, this sermon is not for us today. Uh, There is a school of theological thought that asserts that because the standards of righteousness in this sermon imposes so high of a standard that only those who live in the future millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ can attain to them. So they put the contents of this message into the far future when Christ comes back to reign and say, that's for them in that age, not for us today. Interesting, though, that Jesus never mentioned that far off kingdom aspect, but he was preaching to his contemporaries. And the words were relevant to them at that time. Moreover, the sermon applies to the church age saints. I said it was for us. Every principle that is taught in the Sermon on the Mount is taught elsewhere in the New Testament. We sang a moment ago from Ephesians 4.32, and in this sermon we're told to forgive. That's a principle that's seen elsewhere in the New Testament. Another strand of teaching, another uh, school of theological thought that's been promulgated at least in the American scene relative to this sermon as to how it is to be lived out is found in the social gospel movement. It endeavored endeavored to impose the ethic of Jesus on people who did not have the life of Jesus in them. People in the flesh who had not encountered divine blessing of grace. Thus, they did not have the spiritual resources or the spiritual power to meet Jesus' ethical demands. You can tell people to do these things, but you need the power to pull them off. You have to have the life of Jesus in you. The life of the vine. Remember, as Jesus taught, his life must pulsate through the branches. John 15. No life of Jesus, no spiritual fruit that is produced by Jesus. These things cannot be done apart from you. In fact, uh, the reality is, even as you consider uh, the Pharisees who were religious, everybody thought they knew the Lord. They thought these were the spiritual muckety-mucks, if you will, but their righteousness was merely external. That's one of the reasons 
why to impose the ethic without the life cannot produce what Jesus intends because all it will foster is an external righteousness which is condemned by God and he requires an internal righteousness we'll see it in a moment so we look at verse 2 here in Matthew 5 after he positioned himself to speak preparing to teach the text says he opened his mouth at first glance these words seem superfluous do they not of course he must open his mouth to teach what in the world is that Matthew why are you saying that he opened his mouth how else can he utter words how else can he teach how else can he speak we all do that but what we need to understand the words communicate more than they appear to appear to on a superficial level in fact these words he opened his mouth are familiar Semitic phrase it's an idiom in fact for making an important pronouncement Job for example Job 3 1 he opened his mouth Job chapter 33 verse 2 and he opened his mouth Psalm 78 2 same in fact Psalm 78 2 is repeated in Matthew chapter 13 and is applied to Jesus verse 35 of Matthew 13 I will open my mouth in parables Daniel chapter 10 verse 16 opens his mouth he's making an important pronouncement that's that's what's going on there so it is not just a superficial statement stuck in the text by Matthew because he needs to fill up the white space and he began to teach them so the process of uh, instructing and forming our Lord begins so we move from the setting of the sermon on the new humanity to the second heading the blessing of the new humanity verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit Mm. the first of the beatitudes as a series of words rendered blessed are called they're called beatitudes which is a translation of the latin beatus meaning blessed are happy the word rendered blessed in our english translation is not from the latin but from the greek makarios when I say makarios I'm giving you the singular form it's makarioi uh, in the original it was plural the blessed plural and it's used to describe a person now get this who is especially favored by God and who is therefore in some sense happy or fortunate because of it that's what the word tells us describes a person who is especially favored by God God that will make them fortunate that will make them happy you're favored by God but the word happy is inadequate it's a weakness in using that terminology for uh, describing the favor of God and applying it to the human being Dr. James Montgomery Boyce explains the inadequacy of the word happy here he writes quote 
However, the word happy or happiness is based on an Anglo-Saxon term, hap, H-A-P, which means chance, as in whatever happens or happenstance. Happiness is circumstantial. Therefore, it is uncertain, temporary, and insecure. The blessedness of the Christian life is not temporary or uncertain. It is unshakable. End of quote. I think Boyce is right. Because happiness comes, as we have it one day, it's like a wave that subsides, it goes away, depending on the circumstance. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor, yeah, in a sense, but we can't tie to the ebb and flow of circumstances. Our blessed state before God is certain. We have a relationship with God that is immutable. We have a state of well-being because of that relationship. We've responded uh, to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We responded to him. Therefore, we have this immutable relationship with him. For who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Therefore, we have this deep-seated contentedness due to our relationship with him. That's what blessedness is. Somebody says, have a blessed day. Hey, I'm blessed in my soul because I'm contented in God. I have a relationship with him. People throw words around easily these days uh, not recognizing really fully what they're saying. I'm blessed. Explain it to me. What do you mean? I can tell you what I mean. I'm blessed of God. I have a relationship with him. Initiated by him is by grace alone through faith alone. It's immutable. I'm blessed eternally. I'm going to be with him forever no matter what's going on in my life. Whether I'm blessed according to what people think in terms of prosperity or the lack of it, that is irrelevant. Now in our text here, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We'll notice the present tense verb are uh, here. It's present reality. But we need to um, work on this word poor. We need a, a word study here, don't you think? What is, it, what is the word poor? What are we talking about here? Jesus opens up poor in spirit. First, you need to understand the word uh, is translated here is an adjective that is derived from the verb that means to cower. To bow timidly. It describes the posture of a beggar as he held out his cup and pled for coins from the passerby. The adjective means to be destitute, beggarly. Beggars were often crippled or otherwise incapacitated and completely unable to provide income for themselves. Beggars lived in a state of absolute dependence on the graciousness and generosity of others. That's what the word means here. It's kind of poverty that Jesus is speaking of, but he says in spirit. You see, in the spiritual realm, this is the condition of fallen men due to sin. Every human being is spiritually 
impoverished. Jesus taught here that people are spiritually bankrupt. All people, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, are paupers. They have no spiritual capital whatsoever to purchase salvation. Interestingly, the disciples confused wealth uh, with automatic entrance into heaven. You remember the, the, in Matthew chapter 19, and it says here, there, this is an amazing thing, the rich young ruler, you recall the story, he wanted eternal life, <laughs> came to Jesus, and Jesus told him what he needed to do. His money was his God, Matthew 19. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, because the man turned it down, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were, look what it says here. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now get the response of the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Who then can be saved? The reality is they thought that saved, they're in. They can't buy their way in. Remember the parable in Luke chapter 16? The rich man and uh, Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor man materially, but he had the wealth of salvation. The rich man luxuriated daily, luxurious clothing, wealth, but he was a spiritual pauper. Two men died. One went to Hades, the rich man, and the poor man was in the bosom of Abraham. Profound difference. One believed, the other did not. The uh, old people are spiritually bankrupt. Now Jesus adds here in Matthew chapter 5, you notice he says that their poverty is in spirit. This shows us that he is not talking about economic deprivation. Economic uh, uh, poverty is an analogous thing for spiritual poverty. It's an analogy. So, to be sure, the financially and uh, are economically poor are included, included in Jesus' words. You say, you can be rich, but you're still poor. You can be rich materially, but still spiritually poor. In fact, God has nothing against the materially poor, obviously, because in James 2, ta verse, chapter 2, verse 5, he's granted faith to many of the poor. But they were poor not only materially, but they were poor spiritually. The pro reality is oftentimes people who are poor materially have a keener sense of their need for God. The materially rich don't have that same kind of keenness because all of their needs are met by their wealth. They feel secure. They don't need God. The poor say, I have nothing. I need God. Generally speaking, there are poor people who thumb their nose at God. They're going to live the way they want to live. But our text here says, in spirit. 
poor in spirit. This is critical to grasp. It refers to the inner man, not outward circumstances. The interior reality is in focus in this sermon. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, not interested in external righteousness. External righteousness won't do you one bit of good. In Matthew 5, verse 20, you can see it there. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was wrong with their righteousness? It's all on the outside. No inner conformity to the reality. And as Jesus is preaching this sermon, he is expounding, in fact, the law, the divine law, the law that was given in the Old Testament, the Decalogue and all the related text expounding it. You see the internality of it. Jesus says in verse 21, as we're talking about the in spirit, the inner man, the inner reality, he says in verse 21, you have heard that uh, anxious were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be ang- guilty before the court. He says to his brother, you good for nothing. Shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The reality is Jesus equates anger here, sinful anger expressed in the words with murder. Some people say, I would never, ever, ever take a human life. Jesus said, Oh, but you've been sinfully angry. You're as guilty as one who does. And you're guilty enough to go to hell. It's internal. Internal. Chapter. Uh, you need grace to do this, don't you? 6 1 of Matthew, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's the point. That's what hypocrites do. They want everybody to see what they've done in their religion. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Just don't do that, that externality. Why are you doing what you're doing? Oh, people see me and they think I, he's really close to Jesus. Well, you just got your reward. People said you're really close to Jesus. <laughs> it's the inner reality that he talks about. This inner reality is crucial to understanding how we stand before God. A person who is poor in spirit recognizes he is devoid of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. He knows. He has nothing to offer God for his salvation. He knows he is completely dependent upon the Lord. He knows that there is nothing he can do. He can't merit it. He can't work for it. He has come to that realization that he indeed is bankrupt. I think one of the best illustrations of this is provided by our Lord himself. As he expounds on this reality in Luke 18. 
um, poor in spirit. We see the uh, the reality of a man who was poor in spirit and a man who was self-sufficient and self-righteous. Luke 18, verse 19 through 14. Jesus tells a parable in verse 9. These people trusted themselves and his men went up to pray. Both of them did that in the temple. Verse 10, the Pharisee, he was uh, thanking himself, though he says he speaks to God in verse 11. He, he gives a little resume of his spiritual um, his self-sufficiency. You know, I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm just adulterers or even like this tax collector. Isn't he something? He's thanking God. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. See the man's humility. But was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And it really says the sinner in the Greek. That's why NAS says it, the sinner. He says, I am the sinner. I'm worse than everybody. Notice how he sees himself over against how the Pharisee sees himself. I'm better than other folk. This man says, I am the sinner. This man was poor in spirit. He went home justified. Well, there was a church in the first century that was um, populated with uh, people who were not poor in spirit. Uh, That church was filled with people who thought that they were anything but poor in spirit. They were just like this man in Luke 18. You know the church. Revelation 3. The church at Laodicea. And Jesus has a message for them. Revelation 3. The Lord saying to the uh, angel or pastor of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness as Jesus himself, the beginning of the creation of God, that is, he, he's the leader of it. He started, he's not the first creation. Don't misunderstand that. And he says, let's just skip down and get to the part we want to address right now. Jesus says about them, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of nothing. And now notice, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and blind, poor and blind and naked. You see that? The church was located in a wealthy city. The church's members thought that their spiritual condition really reflected that city's wealth. They said, the city's wealthy, so were we, spiritually speaking. But boy, they were wrong. The true witness, Jesus Christ, faithful and true, he assessed their real condition and told them they were wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. In other words, they were spiritually bankrupt. They were in a church. They would meet, I'm presumably on the first day of the week, but they were all lost. They were all spiritually bankrupt. They were all poor in spirit, but didn't recognize it. They thought just opposite. They were wealthy. 
spiritually. They were broke but didn't know it. That's why he advised them what he does. He used metaphorical terms in verse 18 that they might come to know him and that's why he knocked on the door. He wanted to come into that church so if he came in by someone trusting him recognized they're, they're poor in spirit and they would trust him he would enter in that local assembly there in Laodicea and that church would then have at least one saved person who came to recognize his or her poverty now there's a text you don't necessarily have to turn there you can just write it down Luke 620 because you may wonder about it Luke 620 says this Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Now, the impression one would gain reading that text, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, the parallel passage from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, is that the poor, because they are poor, have automatic salvation. They automatically enter they automatically enter the kingdom because they are poor. That would be uh, the, the, the interpretation by some. And some think that. Oh, you're poor. You're in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> really? Well, I tell somebody who's not poor, they believe that. Go sell all your stuff. Give it to me. You get on in the kingdom that way if you think so. <laughs> it's ludicrous. It's not the case at all. To understand the teaching here of Jesus and understand what the Bible teaches in other areas, keep this in mind. We must remember this sound principle of Bible interpretation. When two or more passages are similar but not exactly alike, the clearer one explains the others. The more explicit text explains the less explicit one. To always keep that in mind. You compare the scriptures. Jesus doesn't say in Matthew economically. Compare the text. This is just one place where that happens. There are other places like that. You always do that. Keep that in mind. If you don't, you will misinterpret scripture. You will misapply scripture. You'll be guilty of saying something that God has not said. People do not get in the kingdom of heaven just because they happen not to have any money. You have to have faith in Christ. This same principle I just enunciated here about sound Bible interpretation is true when we look at Luke chapter 4.18 where it says Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. He didn't ex- just preach the gospel to the materially poor. He's poor there. He's talking about people who are poor in spirit. The poor are included, but others are not excluded. The mendicant here are the spiritually poor that's what our Lord means you'll notice something in verse 3 the clause here says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the word theirs is in the emphatic position in the original language who would have thought it (laughs) they wouldn't think of it what Poor in spirit, yes, therein. When an individual recognizes his utter inability to save himself and cast himself on Christ in total dependence on him, he is graciously saved by Christ. 
and Christ then begins to reign over his life, that person enters in the kingdom, into the kingdom. The kingdom is their possession. It's the grace of God. I opened this sermon talking about that, did I not? The new humanity, they are the recipients of divine grace. They're in the kingdom. And God's extracting from the, the larger uh, humanity a subset of that said humanity, and they are the ones who are in the kingdom. And What's interesting, too, is this. That this whole matter is uh, something that God determined before the world began. The graciousness of God to sinners whom he saves goes all the way back to before time began. You'll recall in Matthew 25, the Lord is going to return. He's going to sit on his throne of his glory. He's going to gather before him the sheep and the goats representing all the people of the world. The goats are going to be on the left side, the sheep on his right side. He says to the sheep these words in Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those future people, at that day when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they demonstrated during a horrible time on earth, during a tribulation period, how they ministered to Jesus' brothers. He says, Come, the kingdom was prepared for you before time began, before the foundation of the world, back in eternity not only for them but for us if you are a child of God do understand that he prepared the kingdom for you before he created the heavens and the earth that's a stunning thing isn't it the unfolding of human history you came to Christ you didn't know that God had determined before he created the heavens and the earth before he let said in the beginning God created the heavens and earth I'm preparing a kingdom for my people. Salvation is a gracious gift of God. The good deeds are the fruit of salvation, not its roots. Keep that in mind. That's why those people in Matthew 25 did what they did because they had salvation and it was the expression of it. The new humanity. That's who we are. We're no longer part of the old humanity. We're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. I think Augustus' top lady's hymn, Rock of Ages, is a fitting commentary on this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, part of the lyrics from it says that, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And if you're a child of God, that's what he's done. He's washed you, you're clean, by the blood of his Son. And it's all by grace. Let's bow together in prayer. We uh, bow before the humble, before you, our Father, thanking you for 
what you've done for undeserving sinners. You've redeemed us. You showed us what we really like apart from salvation. Bankrupt. But you've bestowed upon us the riches of your grace and salvation. Help us to glorify your name and praise you and walk humbly before you, loving you more and more, thanking you for what you've done for us. We pray for those who are hearing what I'm saying and they want this Christ to open their eyes that they may see themselves and fly to him, foul as they are by their sins. Lord, you're the Savior and you can wash and cleanse even as you've done for us. And may we reach out in our own uh, living to those who are like that with the gospel of grace that they may come to know you and join with us in giving you praise for your goodness and mercy and salvation. These things we pray in the glorious name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We conclude.